0: Welcome to the 26 West Church Sunday Gathering Podcast. Our prayer is that this teaching helps you experience life in Jesus. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? All right, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and we are in week four of our Colossians series. And I've been really enjoying this book. This book has shaped me, and I'm really excited we're getting to walk through it. We've been talking about Jesus as Lord over all, that He is supreme and His gospel is sufficient. Last week, Steve unpacked so helpfully this mystery of Christ in us the hope of glory. I know I was really encouraged and moved by this idea of Jesus suffering with us. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, be sure to check it out. That's where we've been. Um, before we get too far into today, I just want to kick it off. I know we just prayed, but I just want to pray again as we transition to our time in the Word. Uh, I know there's been a lot already this morning, so join me again. We're here not to put on a performance, but to connect with as a family, but also that we would meet with our Heavenly Father. So let's, let's pray again. Jesus, I do just... You are king over this church, and Lord, we submit and surrender it to you. Help us to find our place. Lord, I pray that as we open your word now, you would give us ears to hear it, eyes to see it, Lord, hearts that are ready to receive it. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, that you unify us as one, and that we would live indeed all of life, all for you, King Jesus, as you are Lord over all. And all God's people said, amen. All right, church family, imagine with me, imagine with me, That it's a cold, clear day in January of 1945. And the type of day where you can see your breath. And if you stand out in the cold too long, your fingers and toes get numb. And imagine with me that whispers in your camp say that the Allied forces have broken through the Nazi defenses. You can hear artillery fire off in the distance in the Austrian countryside. And you dare to hope that maybe... Just maybe your nightmare is gonna end. You have been suffering in a concentration camp far longer than you can remember, enduring unspeakable horrors. And the bombs are getting louder and louder and louder. The allies are getting closer. And closer and closer, and hope is beginning to rise. All of a sudden, a siren blares, and and the Nazis begin to flee. Your captors are on the run. And just imagine there for a second. It's, It's finally happening. The enemy that has held you captive for so long is finally on the run. They've finally been defeated. You are finally set free. I just want you to imagine the joy in that moment, the relief in that moment, the gratitude at last. Just imagine it. And how unthinkable would it be for you to leave your liberators and then go run off voluntarily again with your Nazi captors, only to be captured again. How unthinkable would it be to leave your liberators, to then go voluntarily with your Captors, only to be captured again. How unthinkable. Church family, the heart of the message that Paul gives us today in Colossians is that you have been set free by King Jesus. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, and you have been transferred into the kingdom of life. You have been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. So don't be taken captive again. You have been set free, church family, so don't get taken captive again. Are you with me? Are you with me? This is where we're going. We're looking at Colossians 2. You can open your Bibles to verses 6 through 15. We've got three movements if you're taking notes. Let us not be taken captive again. But where we're going to start, point one, Jesus is Lord, so live like Jesus is Lord, so let's live like it. This captivity stuff, it's coming, but let's start where Paul starts. Verse 6, let's open our Bibles together. If you don't have one, they'll be up on the screen. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. These first ten words. Paul sums up the entire message of the letter so far. If you missed the last three weeks or if you're new, you picked a good week to come. You're getting the recap uh, here off the jump. Uh, Paul's telling the Colossians, You rightly received Christ Jesus as Lord, for this is who he is. Uh, Jesus is Lord over all. That's what we've been talking about. He's king. He is supreme. It is by him and through him and for him that all things were created. And, And that he's also, all things are held together in him. He sustains all things. He is the head. He is before. He is greater. He is better. This is who Jesus is. He is preeminent and he is Lord, Paul says. But Jesus is also Christ. He is Lord, but he's also Christ. He is Messiah. He is Savior. The same Lord who created you is the one who has reconciled you to himself. He's the same Lord who has rescued you. Jesus forgives sin. He rescues and he saves. Remember Paul's goal in the letter, we've been talking about this most weeks, but Paul's goal in the letter is to mature the Colossians, to mature their view of Christ. He wanted to present them mature in Christ, have a mature view of Jesus. Maturity involves having a right view of Jesus, but also living rightly in light of who Jesus is. See, truly being mature, being mature, says Jesus is Lord, but also lives like it. Maturity embraces Jesus is Lord, but also lives like it. Look at verse 6 again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. See, every commentary and theologian I read all agreed and said that this verse, this verse 6, is the turning point of the entire letter. This is the turning point, the hinge point of the entire letter. And as the first 10 words of verse 6 summed up the entire introduction, the next seven words, continue to live your lives in him. These seven words summarize the rest of the letter ahead. See, those who received Jesus as Savior and Lord must continue to live in him. Those who received him must live in him. That is Paul's logic, and we're going to camp out here for a second. Church family, following Jesus is a way of life. Following Jesus is a way of life. Like picture uh, an athlete or a soldier, right? There's a lifestyle involved with this. You're not casually an athlete or casually a soldier. There's a strict lifestyle and expectations associated with this. You live a lifestyle in alignment with this. And I want to say the same is true of our discipleship to Jesus. There is a lifestyle. And I think in our church culture, we need to hear that following Jesus is not just like praying a prayer and then attending church when it's convenient. Like, this is orient our entire life around Jesus. Orient our entire life around Jesus and live our entire life for Jesus. All of life is oriented around Jesus. He's the center. And all our life is lived for Jesus. He is the goal. He is the center and He is the goal of all of life. Jesus is supreme. (laughs) See, this means that our time, our money, our resources, our dreams, our decisions, our values, our work, our thoughts, our actions, our sexuality, our relationships, our bodies, all of life is all for Jesus. For He is Lord over all. All of life is all for Jesus. For He is Lord over all. See, church family... There is no category biblically for a Christian. There is no categorically biblically for someone who says they're in Christ, who doesn't seek to live a life following Jesus, obeying Jesus, and listening to Jesus. Not perfectly. Of course not. We're all stumbling left and right, up and down, all over the place. But we're working towards this end. We're working towards this end. Church family, Jesus is Lord. So let us live like it. Jesus is Lord, so let us live like it also because it's worth it. We live all of life, all for Jesus, for he is the author of life itself. He is the life. He is the way to the good life. Why do we live this way? Because it's worth it. Amen? Amen. See, verse 7 Paul colors in what this life looks like to continue living our lives in him. Verse 7 here, talking about rooted and built up in him, in Jesus, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See, Paul, he uses some images for what it looks like to live in Jesus. He's helping explain it here a little bit. Picture rooted as a tree, being built up as a structure. What Paul's saying is, is that if the Colossians stick to their roots, if you will, they stick to their roots and if they're built up, They will be strong in their faith. And then they will be able to stand firm in the midst of false teaching. They'll be able to stand firm in the midst of the powers and the trials that will inevitably come. Rooted, built up. Rooted down, built up. But also a third image, like water overflowing a glass. Paul says, living our lives in Christ looks like a life overflowing with thankfulness. See, gratitude is a primary characteristic of God's people because it reveals a true understanding of the gospel. The gratitude is a primary characteristic of God's people because it understands what God has done. It understands God's gospel. It understands God's work. That you know that what you have, what I have, what we have is a gift. Our identity in Christ is received None of this is earned or achieved. Church family, God's the one who adopted us. God's the one who died for us. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who forgave us. He's the one who who wiped away all of our sin. He's the one who died on the cross for us. He's the one who rose from the grave. He's the one who poured out His Spirit, as we just sang about earlier. He's the one who gave us the promise that one day He's going to return and make all things new. So what do we do? We receive it. We receive it, and we respond to it by overflowing with Thankfulness, it's okay to get inside again. you. I hear a couple of you. We can get excited about this good news. We overflow with thankfulness. See, worship and gratitude are the marks of maturity. They are marks of maturity. See, the mature, they stand firm, strong in faith. They stick to their roots. They know who they are. They know who Christ is. And therefore, they are not taken captive. And this leads us to our, our big picture second movement here. First, we see in the text, we see a turning point here in verse 6 and 7. As you received Christ as Lord, now walk in him. We're saying Jesus is Lord, so live like it. And this is going to define the rest of the letter. As we spend these next six weeks together, this is going to define it. Let's live like our confession that Jesus is Lord. Let's live like it. But this leads to our second movement. You can go to that. Number two, don't get taken captive. Don't get taken captive. That's really the heart of the message today. We're here now. Verse 8. Let's read it together. See to it that no one takes you captive. There it is, right? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Let's pause. Paul is warning the Colossians not to let anyone take them captive, which is ironic because Paul is writing this in prison. Right? He's saying, like, don't let anybody take you captive because he's got chains. He says, remember my chains, right? At the end of this letter. Like, so he's not talking about physical captivity, right? Like he's not talking about like physical captivity. What is he talking about? What is he referring to? What is he saying? What is he warning them not to be taken captive by? He says deceptive philosophy. And for context, when we hear philosophy, we think of something like in a university setting. But philosophies back then were much broader. It was a much broader belief system. What Paul's saying is don't get taken captive by other beliefs. Don't get taken captive by other worldviews. Don't be taken captive by other perspectives. And Paul says what marks these philosophies is they're based on human traditions, or you could say common wisdom. It's just the way things are. It's the unquestioned reality around us, the air we're breathing, the water we're swimming in. It's just the way things are. And what's behind this human tradition, what's behind this deceptive philosophy, are elemental spiritual forces, right? There's elemental spiritual forces, and it's like, hang on a second. Like, what is Paul talking about here? Like elemental spiritual, like earth, wind, and fire here. Like some of you have a band now in your head. Uh, if you're over a certain age, you know, we can fire up the September and the boogie wonderland. We're ready to go. Are we talking about like Captain Planet? Like put the rings together, you know, earth, wind, fire. I think it was like love in one of the, like, you know, is this Pocahontas painting with all the colors of the wind. Like what are we, what are we talking about here? Uh, no, it's not that. Um, this is similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago powers language in Colossians. What makes up these spiritual forces are the pagan idols, the false gods. It's also the systems, structures, and cultures in the world that are contrary to the way of Christ. Right? They seduce and deceive. They're the spirits that are not the Holy Spirit, the demonic, and the devil himself. I want you to notice what the common language, what's the common denominator with all of these things. Paul says there in verse 8, they don't Depend on Christ. That's the common denominator. See, in Paul's context, it was likely, just to understand what he was talking about, it was likely a blending of, like, Jewish uh, law, pagan idol worship, maybe, like, Temple of Artemis, which wouldn't have been too far away, uh, uh, and likely some Christian teaching. You have this, like, cocktail of Jewish law, pagan idolatry and worship, and then also some, like, Christian, like, teaching in there. And it was kind of this deceptive cocktail uh, uh, going on in Colossae. And Paul is warning them, don't be taken captive by these philosophies. Don't be taken over by these false belief systems. But the question is, what does this mean for us today? Like, What does this mean for us today? And I'll confess, there's a lot of directions we could go. We could go into so many. Uh, Steve mentioned last week the isms of our world. Racism, consumerism, nationalism, hedonism, postmodernism, and more. And we could do a whole series on this stuff. Uh, this is all around us. This, this is real. This is destructive. We need to have eyes open, ears oh, oh, like alert. This is real. But this morning, what I want to do is zoom in on one thing. And I think it could be the root of actually all these other things. And that is the deceptive philosophy of the self. The deceptive philosophy of the self. We may not follow the cult of Zeus, Right? But what about, as my friend Josh aptly calls it, the cult of self or the kingdom of me? How we don't follow the cult of Artemis, but what about the cult of self and the kingdom of me? We're going to slow down into this. See, the, the self, the kingdom of me, this is the air we're breathing. Again, using that language. We, we, we just look through the, the lens of self. In our modern Western world, see, we don't look through the lens of family. If we, you know, grew up in maybe South America or Latin America, we're likely going to look through the lens of family. This is the the lens we're going to view through. Or, or if we went to Africa or or parts of Asia, we're going to look through the lens of tribe. This is going to be the lens we view all of life through. Just the way things are, tribe or family, but not not in the West. In the West, we look through the lens of self. Again, this is the lens we're looking through. You can find pop philosophers on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram Reels giving pop therapy. And the common denominator is put yourself first. The idol of self says you are the authority of your life. You are the authority of your life. I define me. I decide what's right and wrong for me. It's my identity. I can pick and choose what I want because I am the authority of my life. And the kingdom of me, the cult of self, says you are the center of your story. All of life revolves around me. I find, everything in life finds its reference point to how it references to me. You know, there's a, 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 Gen Z coined this phrase, you know, she's got main character energy, right? Main character energy, like that's a positive thing. But it's also, the like this person's got main character syndrome, like all of life. Again, it's all around that. This is just, again, the water we're swimming in. The script of this worldview is believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. The truth is in you. Liberation is in you. So salvation is finding yourself. Me, 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 me. Again, this is the water we're swimming. This is basically the plot of like every Disney movie. Like, from Moana to Frozen, the truth is in you. Everyone else is trying to hold you back, believe in yourself. You know what's best for you. Break away from all constraints and authority. Nobody can tell you what to do. Go over those waves. You know, with the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me, and nobody else gets to tell me not to go. I'm going to go let it go out there and build my ice castle. Like, I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. You know, and then they, they, the, the, the narrative is, if you go and do that, then you'll be free. Then you'll be, and we can laugh. Like, but this is, like, this is in children's mood. Like, this is just baseline. Again, the lenses we're viewing through. At the end of the day, this preoccupation with the self, this kingdom of me, is a worship of self, because it puts you where only Jesus belongs, the Lord of your life. Like, it's a worship of self at the end of the day, because it puts us where only Jesus belongs, the Lord of our life. As Paul says, it's contrary to Christ, who says, deny yourself. Versus obsess over yourself. To lay yourself down rather than center all of life around you. To seek his kingdom versus building your own kingdom of me. And I want to say this all flies in the face of the idol of self. Discipleship to Jesus flies in the face of the idol of self. Some of the implications of this are don't commit because that will limit yourself. Don't commit to anything because that will limit yourself, limit your possibilities, limit your opportunities. And another, the self says, if it hurts and it's hard, then something must be wrong, so eject. Right? The kingdom of me centers all of life around me and my experience. And I want to tell us, this is a seductive lie. It's a deceptive philosophy. And we're not done, we're going to keep digging in here a little bit more. See, the reality is, doing anything worthwhile is going to be hard and it's going to require laying yourself down. Having a healthy marriage will require laying yourself down. Like, you're not going to stumble into that just like, hey, you know, it's been 50 years and it just so happened we ended up having a great marriage. Like, you had to lay yourself down. Somebody with gray hair, say amen and hallelujah. Like, you know, to have a healthy family... With kids, that like to have a healthy home is not just going to happen. You're going to have to lay yourself down. You know, like I saw a parent, you know, they have like bluey dress with their kids. The last time, like, I don't, you know, I'm watching things I wouldn't normally watch. You know, like I'm giving myself up here, you know, as a parent. Being a good friend is going to require you laying yourself down. To not just care about yourself, but care what they're going through. Care what they're walking through. Care about their life. To put yourself second and put them first. This is true of anything worthwhile. Why would following Jesus be any different? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. That doesn't mean something's wrong and you need to, need to bail. Church family, giving is hard. We just heard this up. Giving's hard. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to feel good. It's not always going to be convenient for goodness sakes. Like, giving is going to be hard. Sacrificing is hard. Serving is hard. Putting yourself last and others first. Like, being misunderstood. Confronting others who have wronged you and not just gossiping about them, but actually confronting them. Like this is hard. Like uh, Confessing your sin. Even more, killing your sin. Giving up time. Laying down your desires for the sake of Jesus. Not just doing what we want to do, but doing what God calls us to do. This stuff's hard. And none of this feels good. None of this is easy, and none of this elevates the self. But our cry, as the people of God, our cry, we echo with John the Baptist who said, He, Christ, must increase, but I myself must what? Must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. This doesn't feel good to the self, but it is the way of life. Because yet again, Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the life. Are you with me? See, to not serve the cult of the self and the kingdom of me means to not view all of life through the lens of myself. So what I want to do is do a little bit of church family application here. Because we're not just going to pick on everybody. I picked on Disney. We're not just going to pick on those out there. We're going to be most critical of our own house. And we're going to be most gracious to those outside of our room, right? So let's do some in-house application here. We don't come into a Sunday gathering evaluating based on how it made us feel or how it met our preferences, you know, so how, how was how, how was the church gathering this morning? Ah, it was all right, you know. Uh, you know the music wasn't exactly my cup of tea. You know I didn't meet my exact preferences. You know Ryan hit a couple sour notes. You know like <laughs> Ryan did not any sour notes. Like we don't come in and evaluate. Like you know Stephen was a little annoying. He, he droned on at a few points. Like you know like this, the self is not the center of our evaluation. We evaluate on did we elevate Jesus and His kingdom? Did we proclaim His gospel? And was his word rightly taught? See, Jesus is the center, not us. Not submitting to the idol of self means we also don't rely on ourselves. We bring others into decision. We allow community to speak into our lives. We don't just trust our own limited wisdom and perspective, intuition, or feelings. On that last point, we don't just blindly trust our feelings. We interrogate. We analyze our feelings, knowing that they are deceptive and they're fleeting. Ah, Hypothetically, you've maybe been in an argument with your spouse before, right? There's you know, so much love, and then somebody does something that like hurts your feelings or makes you upset, and all of a sudden, all that love, where'd it go? Like, where'd all those feelings of, you know, warm where'd they go? They were here, they're gone. You know, like our feelings. You know, I was having a good drive, somebody cut me off, and all of these feelings came out of something. Like, your feelings they come and they go. You know, as quickly, you know, boom, boom. But Jesus, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, what Paul's saying is don't be taken captive by idols, by powers, by principalities that are contrary to Christ. And for us, church family, what I'm imploring us is do not be taken captive by yourself. Do not be taken captive by yourself. Church family, there is another deceiving, seductive kingdom. The devil is real, and his weapons, they're not swords and spears, but they are lies They are scripts. They are seduction. They are distraction. So don't be captured by the self. It feels good. It sounds good. But Jesus and his way is better. Jesus and his way is better. So the question is, how do we not get taken captive? How do we not get captured? How do we actually do this? The answer is know who set you free. Know your king, know your liberator, and his name is Jesus. And Paul, this is not my idea, Paul makes this explicit in verses 9 and 10. Don't be taken captive, verse 9, for in Christ. Don't be taken captive, look to Jesus. Don't be taken captive, understand who Jesus is. He's saying, do not be taken captive, for in Christ. And he's going to help us understand who Christ is. Because not being taken captive is tied into understanding who Christ is. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Paul is saying in strong terms that Jesus is the true God. And all the fullness of deity lives in Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Fullness of deity. He is fully God and he is fully man. Fully God and fully man. Jesus incarnated in bodily form, here Paul says. See, Jesus, he is fully God and fully man. Why does this matter theologically? Why does it matter that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Well, only as fully God can Jesus have the authority to actually forgive sin. Only as fully God does Jesus have the authority to forgive sin. But only as fully man can Jesus actually uh, represent a sinful humanity. Only as fully man can Jesus represent a sinful humanity, have that ability See, Christology, how we view Jesus matters. These things have implication. Fully God, fully man, supreme, Lord over all, but the question is, what's the point with captivity? Paul's logic is, if you're taking notes, write this down. If we see Christ rightly, we won't get captured. If we see Christ rightly, we won't get taken captured. See, what Paul's saying is if, if we're so devoted, if we're so enthralled, if we're so wowed, if we're so reverent, if we're so held in awe by Jesus, just wow, look at Christ. He is amazing. If we see him rightly, then we will see these false powers and ele- elemental spirits as they really are, weak and unsatisfying and foolish compared to Christ. If we see Christ rightly, we're going to see all these other elementary spirits, these deceptive philosophies. We'll see them as they really are. Nothing compared to Christ. See, here at the end of verse 10, Paul is reminding us that Jesus is over every power and authority. Jesus is over every power and authority. What he's saying is is Jesus has no rival. He has no equal. Again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We sing this song. Jesus has no equal. He is supreme. So you don't have to look elsewhere. See, when you see Jesus rightly as the supreme Lord over all, then you have no reason to fear any other. You don't have to look anywhere else. You won't be taken captive by anything. Check that out in verse 10. Read that again. And in Christ, verse 10, you have been brought to fullness. Somebody say fullness here this morning. Fullness. You've been brought to fullness. Fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. See, it's not just that Jesus is Lord over all and he's stronger than all. Amen and amen and amen. Uh, that, That song does not get old. Like, he is stronger. Amen. But that's not all he's saying. He's also saying, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is enough. See, church family, the good life is Jesus. No one can rival Jesus in power and in fulfillment. No one can rival Jesus. No one is equal to Jesus in power and in fulfillment. See, the Colossians, they'll have no interest in false teachers when they realize they've already been brought to fullness by Christ. Like, Paul is saying, when you're satisfied, you're not searching. When you're satisfied, you're not going wandering off in captivity. Here's the deal. Like, I'm not hankering for a gas station corn dog. Like, when I realize I have a ribeye steak in front of me. Like, here's the deal. Like, I'm not, I'm not hankering for a McDonald's filet of fish when I got a filet mignon. Like, I'm not hankering after the gas station burrito when I got good carne asada, like, in front of me. Like, I'm not searching when I'm satisfied. Don't get taken captive. You belong to the all-powerful and all-sustaining one, Jesus Christ. You belong to the all-powerful and all-sustaining one, Jesus Christ. I've got to look elsewhere. There's nobody better. There's nobody stronger. There's nobody more satisfying than Jesus our Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. This leads us to our third movement. Let's take a recap here. Jesus is Lord, so let's live like it. Number two, don't get taken captive. And number three, join the victory parade. Join the victory parade. We'll get there in a minute. Verse 11, in Him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Right talking about circumcision. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Uh, all the dating couples are really glad that they came here to church today. They're, uh, they're, they're feeling very uncomfortable right now, and now they feel all the more dead inside because I've called them out here. Some of you are wondering, like, did we miss a verse, Stephen? Like, where, how did we get here, right? Like, what is going on? Like, I was tracking with you, Stephen, with the captivity, but now, like, I don't know how we got here, Paul, into circumcision. Uh, and if you don't know what that word means, Hosea Zias would love to explain it to you uh, <laughs> after the gathering. <laughs> Let's make some sense of this, though, in all seriousness. Let's make some sense of this. Uh, dating couples, you students, I promise you'll survive. Stay with me, because Paul has something important to say here. He's using graphic, strong, biblical language to say that Jesus is not removing a piece of our flesh but he's removing our fleshly nature. That's what Paul's saying here. Christ's circumcision is not of our physical bodies, but of our sinful flesh. That is put off. That is put away. That no longer defines you. And the question is, why is that good news? See, Paul says here in verse 11, he's making this connection that our whole self, what does that have to do with our big points here? Our whole self was ruled by the flesh. You could say we were taken captive by our flesh, by our sinful nature. The good news is that Jesus actually sets us free from this. Our old self that desires sin, that wants the kingdom of me, that believes in idols, that's drawn to sin, that's drawn to that which will actually destroy us. Jesus sets us free from that old captivity. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't be taken captive. He's saying he sets us free from our, not just the elemental spirits, but from our sinful flesh. See, the language in verse 11, whole self is what it says. There is a pervasiveness of sin, a depth of sinful flesh. See, sin and flesh, it has infected and affected everything. It has affected our minds. It's affected our will, our emotions, our actions, our words, all of life. Here's the thing. We're not taught to sin. We're not, we're not raised, you know, to, 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 have, have to do this stuff. Like, we inherit it. A DNA from Adam's original sin. We're not, we're not raised to, to obey our sin nature. We just do it. We just do it. We inherited a DNA from Adam's original sin, and now we have a sin nature. And we see this in the scripture, but we all see this in our lives. What do I mean? Do you have to teach a child to be selfish, or are they just selfish? Like parents of young kids in the room, do you have to teach them, train them up in the way of biting? Or do they just do it, uh, you know. I, I didn't raise my boys to bite one another. I mean, it's not like they saw like, oh, I, um, dad modeled it. You know, it's like I, they're not raised in this. They're not raised to like, you know, we put some good food on the tray and it's like, you know, this cute little two-year-old they're like, no, you know, so like, it's not like again he doesn't see me at the dinner table doing this behavior. No one taught him this. It just came out of him naturally, right? You don't have to train a child to be selfish or disobedient or rebellious. They just do it. And your child does the same thing. They're not some little angel. Like, there's a reality. We're all in this together. Every parent said amen. Amen. That was rhetorical, but I'm glad you did it. (laughs) Pastor and me, I'm not alone. Our whole self was ruled We were captive to ourself. We were driven by the flesh. But then the good news is our whole self was put off because of the circumcision through Christ. Jesus cuts off our sinful nature so we aren't taken captive by it any longer. Are you with me? Jesus cuts off our sinful nature so we're not taken captive by it any longer. Let's look at verse 13. We're going to jump ahead to verse 13. We'll close with verse 12. Verses 13 to, to 15. This is one of my favorite portions of the entire Scripture. This is good news. Verse 13 says, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. We were slaves to our sinful nature. We were guilty before Christ. But God, but God made you alive. God did it. God saved you. God did it. And this is good news. For if you didn't do the work to begin with, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you didn't do the work to begin with, if it wasn't based on your achievement to begin with, all right, Like, then you can't lose it. Then you can't unearn it. Then you can't unachieve it. Like, For it wasn't your work to begin with. It was God's work from the start. And if he started it, then he's going to sustain it. And he's going to bring it to completion because he is faithful. Church family, the heavy lifting has been done. Jesus already died. He already rose again. He's already poured out His Spirit. The heavy lifting's been done. But we must respond. We must respond. I just want to zoom in here. What Paul says in verse 13. Church family, he forgave how many of our sins? He forgave all of our sins. All of our sins. All of them. He covered what you did in that car that night that you're now ashamed of. He covered that. He covered those words that you can't believe you said in that moment of anger that you wish you could just have it all back. He covered that. He covered that awful night where everything just spiraled out of control and your whole life changed. He covered that. That thing you're thinking of right now that brings up shame and guilt, he covered that. He forgave all of your sins. Every single one you have done and every single one you will do, paid in full. Forgiven, canceled the charge. The debt has been paid. But here's the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Here's the thing about forgiveness. Someone has to eat the cost. See, if somebody owes you $100 and you forgive them, you eat the cost, right? It doesn't just go away. You're out $100, right? Like, it doesn't just go away. You ate the cost. Let me color this in. Forgiving student loan debt has been a big conversation, right, in the news a lot this season. And there's a thousand opinions on it. I'm not going to step any further into that thing. Uh, but central to this thing. Somebody's like, please give me the Christian perspective on student loan debt. Keep looking. Uh, (laughs) But central to this thing is who's going to pay for it, right? Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to eat the cost? Because no one's just forgiven without someone paying for it. The same is true of our sin. There is a debt that must be paid. And the scandal of the cross, the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus, the only one who had no debt to pay, the only one who owed nothing, the only one completely debtless, he pays for it. He pays for it. Read that again, verse 13. He, Jesus, forgave all of our sins. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God is good. God is good. And he is just. Which means he can't overlook sin. He can't overlook injustice. He can't overlook evil. He can't overlook wrongdoing. He can't just smile at all the the evil and injustice in the world, right? He can't just sing kumbaya about all the injustice in the world. We wouldn't want him to. If God is good, he has to do something about the sin and the evil and the wrong in the world, right? Right? That means even the wrong in us, even the evil in us, even the sin in us. See, as sinners, we're part of the problem. We stand guilty before God, every one of us. But again, the scandal is that Jesus takes our place. He takes all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness. This is what church history for 500 years has been talking about, the great exchange. He takes all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness. The beauty of the cross is this is where justice, and this is where mercy come together. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. Jesus dies in our place. The debt is canceled. He eats the cost. Jesus eats the cost by nailing it to the cross with Him with him to save us, to adopt us, to forgive us, and to set us free from captivity. This is the good news of the gospel. See, God both forgives the penalty of sin and evil. He forgives the penalty of sin and evil, and he defeats the power of sin and evil as well. He forgives the penalty and defeats the power. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, in the ancient world, winning a, a winning army would ride into the kingdom capital as a victory spectacle. It was a scene. There would be a procession with the spoil trailing behind. Defeated soldiers would be chained behind the victorious army, and they would be proudly marching together. And then the king is at the front of this parade, leading into great celebration. It was a spectacle, a spectacle of utter humiliation of the enemies, utter defeat of the enemies in the ancient world. And what the picture is here is that through Jesus' death and resurrection he has made a public spectacle of the defeat of the powers and authorities. See what the image here is that Jesus he is marching ahead as the good king and sin and death and evil and disease and idols and false gods and injustice and oppression and Satan and his demons are chained behind him in utter humiliation and defeat Church family. This is the image they are utterly humiliated and defeated. Jesus has won the war through his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection. You're free. You're free. You're safe, and your king has won. And, church family, this is good news, amen? amen. This is good news. To picture, as I was prepping like, with I kept getting emotional as I was, I was picturing, like to picture as we're at St. Vincent's Hospital praying. Over Tim Middleton, who has cancer, and realizing that cancer is chained in utter defeat. Like there's coming a day where there's a public spectacle where they will be put away forever. There's coming a day where disease is put away forever. But he's been dealt the public spectacle, the defeating blow has been dealt through Jesus' death and resurrection. That parade is coming. That's good news. That is good news. So in closing, church family, join the victory parade. Join the victory parade. The way we enter it, Paul says in verse 12, is through dying and rising with Christ, which is what baptism represents down into the water, dead to sin, and rising out of the water alive with Christ. See, baptism proclaims that we belong to Jesus that we are part of His kingdom, and He has set us free. So why would we go back into captivity again? We can avoid falling back into captivity. We can resist the call of the powers and the empty philosophies around us. We can renounce the idol of self and stand firm in the faith by remembering who we are. By remembering who we are. By remembering whose we are. By remembering what life was like in our old captivity. Remembering that old enemy has been defeated and is no rival to Jesus. So let's ask ourselves today, these questions will be up on the screen. Where in your life is the self, is me, at the center instead of Jesus? What other scripts, what other beliefs, what other deceptive philosophies are vying for your allegiance and are trying to take you captive? This isn't neutral, trying to take you captive. And lastly, Jesus is Lord. So what action step do you need to take to live more like it? Today, process with a friend. Come forward in a moment for prayer. Invite the Spirit to help you. Church family, for as you receive Jesus as Lord over all, now walk in him. He has set you free. So don't be taken captive again. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have set us free. Thank you that you have made an open spectacle of the defeat of all sin and evil and injustice through your glorious death and resurrection. Help us to remember the story. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to respond to it. Jesus, thank you that you're stronger. Thank you that you're better. Thank you that you're more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. Help us to live like it. Spirit, help us live like it. We need you. We need you. And now, Lord, help us respond to it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Sunday Gathering podcast. To learn more about 26 West Church, please visit our website at 26westchurch.org.